to know it all so that when everyone comes back this next week into uh, to be able to say, hey, let me catch you up on every little detail or else I have to do it again next week. And you guys don't want me to do that, I don't think. Um, but we are going to walk through one of my favorite books. It's going to be a change of pace from where we have been in Philippians. Again, we closed Philippians last week. This is actually the book that we were in prior to our study of the book of Philippians. And largely, some of these verses I preached through, this was all the way back in September, were in the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's in the Old Testament. It's coming at the end of Proverbs, and we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we'll get through a few of these verses here today. Uh, but we, we went through all of Philippians, and at the end, we spent a lot of time talking about contentment, being content, whether high or low. In all things, be content with that which you have. And we, we spoke at great lengths about those who have seemingly everything in their life, but yet they're just not content. They're not happy. It's just not enough. The billionaire who needs one more dollar. Um, the, the corporation that needs just one more dollar. Um, so many people uh, in so many different circumstances seemingly lack contentment. Well, here we're going to address many things. This is wisdom literature. This is um, a book which is written by Solomon. Many of you, um, as I look around, I know are familiar with Solomon. Um, Ecclesiastes means preacher. He even addresses himself in this way, that I, the preacher, am writing this. And, and this is coming from the Greek word of ecclesia, which is an assembly or a congregation, essentially what we are doing here in this time. This was written no later than 931 B.C. How many of us were around in 931 B.C.? Okay, there's two of you. Okay. I'm not going to say which two. Uh, Solomon, son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is how he addresses himself in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, in this book, Solomon wrestles with all of these enigmas of life, but yet he involves himself in these questions. I enjoy this book because he walks through so many common questions. He, he struggles to understand the meaning of life, why things occur the way that they do. He seeks to understand and even wrestles even within his own humanity on many of these things. And I think much like we saw with many of the Psalms, there's a very personal tone that this takes. And we see honest questioning of things where it's sought to actually understand many of these questions. One commentator wrote that, he has built an observation tower, and he has put it at ground level. As he seeks to observe these things, he's kind of put it at a very basic level. Uh, before we get into our text, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do um, come before you this morning um, as your people in this assembly to uh, not only sing these songs of praise and all that you have done and the fact that you continue to provide for those who often show ourselves to be undeserving, but this morning we rejoice in the fact of this gathering together, the fact that we get to uh, praise you in this time, and we can simply look at your word, and I pray, um, as we looked at in our Sunday school time, I just pray that your spirit would um, illuminate these words, that we would receive understanding, and that we would see all that it has to offer us this morning. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's take a look here, verses 1 through 4. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the river come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor. Men cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. The thing that hath been is that which always shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been already of old time, which was before us. Many of us are familiar even with the opening line there in verse 2, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, growing up, I only knew of a vanity because of my grandmother. Um, I, I thought, you know, a vanity was simply, um, well, I, the same way you guys are thinking, kind of smiling at me as if to say, you fool, right? Um, this dresser of sorts and it, the mirror and, and reflecting there, obviously, uh, we understand vanity in so many ways. We know those who are incredibly vain. It's not um, something that we desire of each and every person that we come into contact with, but we like to look at ourselves, both uh, metaphorically as well um, for some of us as in reality. Um, my children love mirrors. Maddie loves a mirror. Many of you know that Maddie loves mirrors. She loves to look at herself. She's always worrying about um, if her hair looks pretty or if her hair is crazy, and she does all of these different things. But here in the opening line, Solomon is addressing what is most important. This follows the custom that you would include at the very beginning, the most important thing, so that you knew from the very outset what is the most critical aspect of what it is that he is going to be writing. Um, in the past, when we preached through this text, we likened it to uh, the different television shows, particularly in the crime shows, like, um, and I had mentioned Monk or Law and Order, where you see at the very beginning who died. You see the crime happen. You either see the person who did it or you see what exactly took place, and the rest of it is the outworking of what actually happened. And that's why I love the crime shows. You're trying to fill in those gaps there that are in the middle. Um, essentially, this is like any documentary that you've ever seen. We know the conclusion because it's a historical documentary. If you were to watch a World War II documentary right now, how many of you would sit back as you're watching this and saying, I wonder who's going to win? Only those who had no idea, right? We should all know. We know the end. We know the beginning. We know what kind of happens. But everything in between is what we're going to learn. We're not learning a new conclusion here. So he is going to open... And end this section, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's saying that all things are fleeting, all things are meaningless, and he repeats this again for this emphasis. All things are fleeting. 
Now again, think about who Solomon is. This is a man with an incredible amount of wealth, has everything that we could ever imagine that we want in any material way. We just talked about contentment, right? And here he is, this man who's had everything. He's, he has all the wisdom that a human has, could ever have. And yet he comes to this conclusion here at the very beginning as he's wrestling with these things and says, all of this is meaningless. It is all fleeting. How often do we and so many in the world chase after things that are fleeting, that mean nothing? You work all of your life to accrue uh, the right status, the right position, the right amount of money that seems to be enough, and then how much of it do you take with you? None. Here he begins very, very clearly. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is all meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And I want to stop for a moment and make it very, very clear. This is not going to be the conclusion that we're ending with in all of Scripture. It's not as if, um, we, we talked before about because Scripture says it and people try to play all these tricks and games with Scripture. And you could take this out and say, see, even the Bible says everything is meaningless, so nothing matters. The popular worldview held by so many that nothing in life actually matters, so just do what you want to do. Consume and enjoy because you're all that there is. This is all that life is ever going to be. There's nothing after you die, so just enjoy your time right now. And if that's the case, why would not every single person seek to dominate another, to accrue everything that they could possibly get? If you believe that life is meaningless and that it has no meaning at all, what is it that keeps you then from stealing from the person right next to you right now? Or from punching the person next to you right now? There is nothing that would hold you back because ultimately it's meaningless. It's not as if it matters anyways. It's just your body reacting and doing things. You don't have any control. You don't have any choices. It just happens. But yet the same people that hold those views, what happens if you were to walk up to them and punch them in the face? You think they're going to be happy about it? They're going to be upset, right? Because we understand it actually means something. This is why it hurts so much when we lose somebody that we care about. Here he, he's, he's opening this up, and I think in a very real way that so many of us have often thought is, what truly is there that is meaningful? Is there really any meaning to what it is that I am doing? All of these things are fleeting, so what purpose is there in what I do in my life? And then in verse 3, it moves even one step further. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? He's asking the question, what has man gained from all of this labor under the sun? Solomon is seeing these prophets as fleeting. As you work so hard for all of these things, and what does it really amount to? It's fleeting. It's meaningless. What did you really get from it? It's clear from the whole testimony of Scripture that the only lasting human efforts are those designed to accomplish God's purpose for eternity. Imagine the person who spends their entire life seeking and helping others with all these humanitarian efforts, donating to charities, doing so many wonderful good things, yet actively cursing God every single step of the way. They pass away, and what was the profit of all of their work? They're left with nothing in the end, and they're standing before God as if to say, God, did you not see how much we did? 
but yet actively denying any existence of a God, saying that there is no meaning to anything that they do. Actively fighting against God while then seeking as if, if God ends up being real, if they're standing before him, that that's going to be enough. He opens in a very real sense that I think many of us have found ourselves in or at least considered at different times in verses 2 and 3, and his conclusion is essentially that life is meaningless. We just spent weeks talking about contentment. Now notice the contrast. We walked through this text heading into Philippians. We saw the joy even in suffering. We saw the purpose behind it. We saw the reason for these things. We get to the end, speaking of contentment. Now we're right back here, and we're seeing verse 2. All of it is fleeting. Everything here is meaningless. What profit does it even have for a man? This is a man's conclusion that life is meaningless. But is it truly meaningless? Do you sit there today? Again, small group, so I'm actually able to look at each and every one of you a lot more. And you're already probably like, he's looked at me more times than he ever has. I'm not picking on you. There's just fewer of you to look at right now. So I kind of enjoy this time. But his logical conclusion after all of these things, and he walks through, notice in verses 4 through 7, he gives the creation um, account of all of these things. It's repetitive. It continues on. He says, all of these things are fleeting. All of these things are meaningless because at the end, we take nothing with us when we die. Nothing. This whole question is basically he's seeking to answer, is there actually any life, any living before we die? Is there truly any life? And so his, the conclusion that man often comes to with self-reflection, as they see we take nothing with us, there is nothing after death, the logical conclusion is that life is just meaningless. And I want to read a few different quotes, some from uh, philosophers, some from others. And when I say others, you'll figure out which one I mean when I read it. Tolstoy wrote this. He said, The only absolute knowledge attainable by man is that life is meaningless. Think about this. You, you've lived your whole life. You've written so many things, and you come to this conclusion that the only thing that is absolutely true, the only absolute knowledge you can have is that life is meaningless. This sounds like a guy you really want writing you love letters, right? I love you so much, but life is meaningless, so what does that matter? This is the conclusion here of one of the greatest authors and writers. The only absolute knowledge attainable by man is that life is meaningless. Another individual named Val Galvan wrote this. He said, life is meaningless until you realize that it is you who gives it meaning. Now, now consider this for a minute. He's saying life is meaningless until you realize that it is you, that's where I'm putting the emphasis, who gives it meaning. Who gives our life meaning? God does. The, the computer that a person builds does not get to decide what it is going to be. The computer, because it's been created to be a computer, does not get to say, I don't really want to be this. I want to give my life a new meaning. I'm going to be an airplane. What's going to happen when you throw it off of the building? or you dump it out of an airplane, it's going to be exactly what it was created to be, a computer. And it's going to fall very quickly, and it's going to break. 
We do not get to give our life any meaning. Again, Solomon's whole life purpose and meaning was as far as accruing all of this wealth, doing all of these things that he was doing, and yet it comes to the end of it, having everything, seeking after meaning, and realizes at the end he's empty. I really wanted this job. Man, I got it. Why don't I feel fulfilled? Man, I really have everything that I thought I ever wanted. I don't feel content. Why is it? This one, never thought I would do this on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's best we're in a smaller group today. This is by Arnold Schwarzenegger, theologian. He said, the meaning of life is not simply to exist or to survive, but to move ahead, to go up, to achieve, to conquer. This all is stemming from the very worldview that, you know what, we're just here for this time. This is all that there is. So get as much as you can while you can. Enjoy everything to its fullest extent. Go up, achieve, conquer. So again, the question is, what then stops any one of us from trying to conquer another person? What stops us from ever trying to assert control over another person? If all of it is meaningless, don't I just want to get the best out of this that I can right now? Don't I just want to have as much money as possible for as much comfort? Don't I want all the power and authority so that everyone's looking at me and I get all of this glorification? Because if this is all that there is, that is all that we would desire. The fourth one, it's an anonymous quote. Don't ask what the meaning of life is. You define it. You define it. Scripture is absolutely clear that we are not the ones who define what the meaning of life is. Again, going back to the computer illustration, you didn't create your life. You don't get to decide what the meaning of it is. Do we have dreams and do we pursue those dreams? Absolutely. But do I get to sit back and say, you know what I think the meaning of life is? Here's the meaning of my life. What is the meaning of of the life of man. Why is it that we were created? What was our primary mission? To glorify God. In the garden, we were meant to magnify and to show the glory of God, to take care over these things, to show who God is. The whole point of Israel was to be a light to the nations that surrounded it, to testify to who God was, to show God, to be different, to be set apart. And yet Israel said, hey, God, I know you're our king, but we think we can do one better. We want to vote. We want to elect our own king, and he needs to be a person. But not just any person. He needs to be super handsome. He needs to be strong, and he needs to be a conqueror because God isn't those things. This is so often what we've fallen into, and largely these movements now to say, you determine the meaning for your life as if God has not given you this meaning, as if God has not created each and every person with the meaning to magnify and to glorify him and him alone. There are many who believe that the meaning in their life is to destroy those who believe in God, dedicating their entire life. There's thousands, thousands of books, millions of pages written to 
destroy Christianity, to destroy the Bible, to say that there is no God, to prove these things. Why? If it's so meaningless, why would you care what a person believes? Why does the atheist fight so hard against the Christian position if it is all meaningless and inconsequential in the end of the day? But yet, we know why the Christian fights so hard against the atheist position is we understand this life is not meaningless. Though it is fleeting, it has intrinsic meaning, and it also has eternal consequence. The atheist says, why would you believe in all of this? This is stupid. You're a fool. It's ridiculous. Well, it, based on their position, it's meaningless. So why does it matter what I believe? The Christian argues not on our own behalf, but also greatly out of a concern for that person who absolutely rejects God. You don't fight for something that you don't really care about. How many of us would die for something that we don't believe in? How many of us are going to argue for positions we don't truly have any stake or any belief in? And so he continues to walk through this, and he even gives these different illustrations, and we'll move very quickly. Verse 4, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Every single person here came from somewhere, right? We came from our parents. If you weren't if you didn't know, now you know. You came from your parents. You're welcome. Again, we just went to the Museum of Natural Science. I know how this works. One generation comes and another goes. Think of how many people have ever lived. Every person, with a few exceptions, that we read about in Scripture has passed away, right? We all have friends, family members, and again, on a day where we do remember on this weekend of Memorial Day, we know those who have passed away. There are some, one generation has passed away and another generation cometh. We have multiple generations represented here even. All will pass away, but the earth abideth forever. He's saying the earth is still here, but yet basically I'm going to die, I'm going to go away. We can all think of different people in the past and we'll say, hey, do you remember um, this one guy from 15 years ago? I can't remember his name, but he passed away. And we don't even remember everybody's name that we've ever met. When I die, I'm going to be largely forgotten by a lot of people. And that's okay. I don't want you to remember me. I'm not that entertaining. I'm not that exciting. Not that interesting. Pretty dull, pretty boring. And Brittany is quietly giving an amen. That's what happens. And here, think about it. Solomon's walking through this and just saying, look, one generation comes and another goes, but the earth's going to stay here forever. We are fleeting. We will fade away. But the earth abides forever. And in verse 5, the sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. No matter what is going on in the world right now, you're Pick your favorite day that you have ever lived and then contrast that with your worst day. The sun came up that morning and it went down that night. I, I guarantee you that it did. And the sun doesn't even get to say, you know what, I don't want to come up today. Could you imagine that the sun one morning waking up saying, no, I'm tired, I'm going back to sleep? Poor farmers, right? Actually, you might get some sleep then. The sun just does what it was created to do. And the sun is not 
and rebellion. It's not an objection against what God is commanding it to do, how God is directing all of these things. The sun is going to rise. The sun is going to go down, no matter how great or how awful the circumstance is. So rejoice again in the Lord. It's coming up tomorrow. I think there's a song about that, right? Understanding these things. He's wrestling with reality. He is noticing and he's outlining the repetition. Verse 6, the wind blows and it returns back. The same with the rivers and the sea in verse 7. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Is life not repetitive? Every day, the sun comes up, sun goes down. Every day, the wind blows, the wind stops blowing. Water comes down, water runs, continues. Every day, it's the same thing. It's kind of the most sure thing that we have is the sunrise and the sunset, the fact of the wind blowing. Some of you, one of the most sure things that you have in your life is I'm going to wake up at this exact time, I'm going to drive this exact way to work, every single day is the exact same thing. It's monotonous, it's boring, it's repetitive. Some of you are getting really excited about the idea of everything being the exact same. My dad's idea of a fun morning is, well, he doesn't have any idea of a fun morning. Um, for Ever since I was born, every breakfast for him, it was two pieces of toast. He's cut it down to one. It was a big step for him. So that's his excitement, is peanut butter on toast with some honey on it. Every single day. If we were to call him any morning, we know exactly what he's making himself for breakfast. And I used to always ask him, don't you want something different? He said, why? I like this. Why would I have to change it? That to me is so bloody boring. There's no way I could ever do that. How many of you, we're just, again, we're a small group here. How many of us, how many of you guys eat the same thing every morning or every lunch? Wow, I'm so impressed. <laughs> It's all, that's bad, yeah. It, it's, it's boring, it's monotonous. Some of you are looking at me like, that would be the worst possible thing. It's the same thing every single day. And some of you are going, I wish that was the case because then I knew what it was. I have a routine. Uh, my idea of a fun time driving to work is to take uh, three left turns instead of going this way. It's to go this way instead of here. All of these different things. Life is boring. It's monotonous. It's the same thing day after day after day after day after day. Everything around us continues on business as usual. Things can grow to be mundane and repetitive and boring. And he says why in verse 8, and I think this is incredibly important for us to understand and to apply. He says in verse 8, All things are full of labor, men cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear, nor the ear filled with hearing. The eye is not satisfied with with seeing or the ear with hearing. Think about what day-to-day -day we just pass on as if it is meaningless, where we, we practically act as if our life is meaningless, where we don't take careful attention to people that are around us, to the things that we see, and we just assume that it's always going to be there because it has been for a certain amount of time. It's always going to be there. That every day you drive somewhere, for those of you that have to drive somewhere every day, and you just assume you're going to get to where you intend to go. 
that you're going to pass places and people that have always been there and that they will always absolutely be there. And that when you return home, everything will be there just as it was when you left. These are powerfully uh, harmful assumptions that we have. We allow the, the beautiful, the spectacular, the magnificent things to become commonplace or standard or even that something to be ignored. I use it all the time. We look around and we see how beautiful everything is outside and we just go, oh, that's nice. This is why I keep drawing back to it. I'm from Flint, Michigan. I'm used to looking at nothing good. Like, you, yeah, you guys were around there. They're laughing. They said, it's worse than he says. It's awful. Don't go there. But how beautiful it is to actually have something to see and to absolutely go, well, it's easy to know that God made this. Because that's a lot better than a run-down, broken-up building. How much do you see each and every day and act as if it's just some commonplace, standard, natural, always going to be there, average to below average, and just go, that's nice. Again, we were just, we saw the Da Vinci exhibit down there. We see all these things that Leonardo da Vinci has made. Inventions, paintings, all of these fantastic things. I even said to Brittany, the Mona Lisa, everyone is enthralled with it. There's this whole wing of the exhibit basically dedicated to the Mona Lisa and how they did all this. And I'm looking at it going, eh. <laughs> That's just me, but it's, fan it's supposedly, I'm trying to enjoy it. I just struggle to. An incredible thing. There's like four different layers to it. There's all these intricacies. It is a fascinating thing that he did. Architecture is a phenomenal, fascinating thing. I find it boring because I don't understand it, but there is so much beauty to that, to how these things work, to how lights work, to how a boat even floats, to how we have planes now. And we just go, well, we've had planes for a while, so it must be simple, it must be easy, it must be commonplace that we can do these things. Not at all. Moving past just things, we consider those things that were always around, we get complacent that rather than be content with it, we can have contempt against those things which are common and very commonplace to us. I've been married 50 years. What do you mean? I'm supposed to, I can't still love my wife after 50 years. We've been together so long. You, you walk through all of these things where a spouse, a person that you have tied yourself to in union for all of eternity, for all of this time, whether in sickness or in health, you guys know the vows, walking through all of these things and saying, you've just become commonplace to me now. Or a child can become commonplace to us because they're there every morning. This is an incredible thing that we do. Why? Because our eyes are not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. We hear about Christ coming as a man, living on this earth, a perfect sinless life, dying on the cross for sins. Everything that we mention, that we discuss, that we remember when we come to the Lord's table in communion, and we can hear it and we go, you know what? Yeah, that's great. I got it, though. I need something else outside of that. Give me something I can really chew on, something valuable, something important to me, because I've heard it so much that it can lose its meaning. That's not a problem with the message. 
It's a dangerous thing when a a child becomes commonplace and you're not appreciating this, when a spouse can be a commonplace rather than a beautiful, magnificent union meant to reflect Christ in the church. Imagine God saying, you know what, church? I've kind of looked at you for a long time now. I think we need some time. I think I'm going to separate myself from you right now. But is that not how the church treats God? God, I, you know, I... Been, we've been serving you for a while. I've been in church a lot. I've read my Bible so many times. It's just kind of old hat by now. I get the idea. I know you're supposed to be beautiful. I just don't really see it anymore. That is a one-way street that we have in terms to God. Something uh, so beautiful as and seemingly miraculous as even a birth of a child where we just assume that well, you're, you're pregnant, you're going to have a child. No, not the case. It's so commonplace now that throughout so many generations, it's been accepted that you don't even have to have the child. You can just get rid of it. It's not even a child. It's not even a really a thing. But every single birth is miraculous. Every single child, every bit of life that has ever happened. This extends past children. Those of you that uh, grew up on farms, have a farm, work on that. The miracle of a calf being born. I don't understand it. I've never been there for it. I've seen videos. I don't know why I watched those videos, but it was fascinating to me. It is truly a beautiful, magnificent thing. And yet we just go, of course, animals have babies. It's incredible. And as I I studied through this, and we'll stop here on verse 8, but I want us to just sit there for a minute. And as he wrestles with this, all of these things, he's stemming this out from an assumption that if everything is meaningless, and here, because it's mundane, so there's no meaning in it, it's not beautiful anymore. Our eyes tend to take away the beauty the more that we see it. That so often we, we hear about a person who has come to receive Christ as Lord. They've come to salvation. They have believed upon Christ, and we go, oh, cool. And we just move on in our conversation as if someone's eternity has not been absolutely, completely, and radically changed. Well, I've heard of people getting saved before. It's, you know, it's whatever. It's not a beautiful, miraculous thing. This is often how we practically can interact. If someone were to to come in or we were to hear about a person had just received Christ, maybe someone that's not even here today, that they're out somewhere, maybe they're camping somewhere, and they get to have a conversation with somebody that they otherwise would not have had. They're sharing the gospel. That person believes upon Christ, and they come back, and they tell you all about it, and you go, wow, that was amazing. So we just started Ecclesiastes. It is a beautiful miracle. The power of God changing the heart of a person forever, for all of eternity. An enemy of God becoming a friend of God, a child of God, no less. Conforming into the image of Christ, that's a miracle. None of us here can do that. And so I guess in closing, and I've said a lot of things I didn't plan on saying, and that's okay. Camp on verse 8. What are those things that your eyes have kind of lost interest in seeing, where you've lost the beauty of what it is that you were meant to behold, or that you've heard certain things that are majestic, that are incredibly beautiful, that are spectacular, and we just act as if I've heard that all of the time. 
as if it just doesn't really have the meaning anymore because we're familiar with it. God forbid we become so familiar that our spouse would lose the beauty that we had at one prior time, that the gospel would lose its beauty, that the fact of salvation of God eternally redeeming sinners would just become a commonplace or a natural thing as if it's not an incredible miracle, beautiful power of God. Here he's stemming all of this from that assumption, and as he continues to work these things out, we understand life is not meaningless, and it has incredible meaning because God himself has created all of us with that purpose to absolutely glorify and serve him and love him in all things. And we'll continue seeing that as we go. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for today. We thank you for the beauty of all that your hands have made. We praise you for the beauty of your word as we hear it and And through the Spirit, we recognize it as that which is true, and we, as your sheep, we know your voice. Lord, I pray that though we walk through a few simple verses, and as we've seen Solomon here wrestling with uh, what at times seems like the reality, I pray that we would forever keep in focus the true beauty of what it is that you have done and what you have accomplished through the work of your Son, doing that which we could never do, paying the debt that we could never pay back. All out of your love and your grace and mercy so that sinners could be reconciled to you and be counted righteous because of what Christ has done. God, I pray that for all of us here that we would have the courage and the boldness to interact with those that, that do believe that life is meaningless, that they they get up and they do the same things day after day after day as if it has no meaning and that they, they're wrestling with some sense of identity, some sense of, of struggling and wondering what it is that they're even striving after. I pray that your people, not just in this church, but in this valley and in this country, would continue to share the message of the gospel, of understanding the intrinsic value of being created in the image of God, that you have given us a purpose, you have given, you have given us an incredible meaning to our life, and that we... As, as your people, understanding your word, have that message and that hope. We live in such a time of, of pessimism and in a world which is so actively against you and seeking to undermine all that you have revealed through your word, God. We need uh, your strength. We need the, the strength of your spirit to stand up and to boldly proclaim the truth of your word to all people. God, I pray that you continue to guide us and lead us by the giving of your spirit into all truth. And God, we just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as Mrs. Pace uh, plays, I do want to just offer a moment to reflect on where we were there at the end of verse 8. What have I allowed that's beautiful that God has given to me to simply become meaningless?